Last fall, there were a group of us on staff that uh, were interested in getting into leather working. So we organized a class. Uh, we invited Stacy to kind of offer us a, a beginner class, get us started. And both Patty and I took the class, found it interesting, and over the year have made various projects and found it uh, kind of fun. But I wanted to tap into my blacksmithing hobby, combine it with the leather, and so I wanted to make myself a brand. That when I make something out of leather, I could put my brand on it, kind of like put my mark on it and identify it. So I made the brand, which was no simple task, and uh, show you a picture of it. It's not terribly complicated, but that's what it looks like. But here's the deal. You can invest 20 to 30 hours in making a leather bag, but the moment of truth is when you burn that brand on it because there are multiple ways it can go wrong and there's no going back. You can't fix it, you can't unbrand it, you've just ruined 30 hours worth of work. So when I get ready to put the brand on it, I am in the zone. I make sure I'm not tired, I clean everything up, I turn off the television, I say to Patty, honey, not now, I'm in the zone, and I am dialed in because you get one chance. I refer to this as my game face. I get my game face on. Anybody that has been involved in sports understands what a game face is. But I would suggest everybody has a game face. You just have to figure out where is it for you? What is that moment when you shut out the world when you are in the midst of intense concentration, this is the moment, you know, you're in the zone, you have your game face on. And kind of tap into that. Because the question we're wrestling with this morning is how do we live as hope-filled people in a culture of despair? And I would suggest to do that, you have to have a really good game face. That's what we want to talk about this morning. Have your Bible turned to us to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you weren't here last week, we started our study of 1 Peter. And really, verses 3 through 12 are the foundation of this study. If you missed last week, you really need to go back and either find the transcripts or CD or get on the website or something because... In order for Peter to make sense, you really have to understand what he said in the opening part of the text, which was last week. Verses 3 through 12 are one long, beautiful, run-on sentence that fills our lives as believers with hope. So verse 13 starts with the word, therefore. And we've kind of rehearsed our little adage over the years. Whenever you see the word, therefore, you stop and see what it's there for. Whenever you see the word therefore to interpret the text properly, you have to go backwards before you can go forward. You have to understand what it's referring to, therefore, uh, whatever. 
this is a really important theological point to understand. Because basically what the text is saying is a very consistent message in the New Testament. That, it, that our lives, our behavior starts with the right theology. And then it moves to the right behavior. In other words, our behavior, our attitudes, the way we live flows out of right beliefs. To understand it and to believe it. At the end of the day, every person in the room ultimately lives out your belief system. If I could trail behind you for a couple weeks, I could determine very accurately what it is you actually believe, what you value, what matters to you, what you think is worth living for. I could assess your belief system based on your behavior because at the end of the day, everyone lives out his or her belief system. The therefore here is a reference to this magnificent truth that when I was nothing more than a sinner, misfit, and loser, for reasons only God ultimately understands, God chose me. God chose me to be his son, to be the recipient of the family fortune. We were told that according to the mercy of God, God has caused me to be born again to a living hope in order to make me an heir to the family fortune. It is a fortune that can never be destroyed, it can't be corrupted, it can never be diminished in any way. And because it's based on the grace and mercy of God and not on the basis of my performance, it is so sure that it's actually reserved in heaven for me today and will ultimately be revealed when Jesus returns. That is, in essence, the fullness of the hope of the gospel, made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The idea, then, is if I understand that and believe it, I pose the question at the end of our time together last week, either God is a liar, and if he's a liar, let's be done with this and let's walk away, or he tells the truth. And if he tells the truth, then that is true. And if it's true, it should change the way I live. Almost all of Paul's epistles are written this same way. So Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, they're all written front-loaded with doctrine, back-loaded with what this looks like lived out. So we understand it and believe it, and then we live like it. The problem is we want to skip the front part and just go to the back part. We want kind of the practical how to fix our lives. We're not as interested in the deep, rich theology that ultimately is necessary for that to happen. If you go to a Christian bookstore, if you go to Barnes & Noble, if you go to Amazon, and you look at the Christian books, almost all of them deal with the back half of the epistles. I want to know how to fix my marriage. I want to know how to fix my kids. I want to, 10 ways to be happy and joyful in life. I want kind of all that practical fix my life stuff, but there aren't that many books on the front half of the epistles, which is really the deep, rich theology that makes it all possible. 
Churches and preachers are notorious for overemphasizing the behavior part of our Christian life. That was kind of our problem in the fundamentalist movement. We were all about kind of the rules and the guidelines and the behaviors. It was very well intended. But in essence, when the behavior becomes more important than the core theology, it simply results in legalism. We just, in our flesh, are trying harder. And that will never give us the joy, the peace, the hope that we long for deep in our souls. So the therefore is reminding us that we first understand and believe. And we believe it to such a degree that then it flows out of our lives in how we live. If you have a behavior problem, it's ultimately a belief problem, and that's where it has to be corrected. So all that's kind of part of the therefore, because 3 through 12 is true, therefore we should live like it. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. The actual Greek there is gird up your minds. The translators try to find some English phrase that kind of has the same meaning. If you were to read the words, gird up your mind, you walk away saying, I don't know what that means. But to a first century reader, it was full of meaning. The men in the first century wore robes for a variety of reasons. They were great except when it was time for action. Then they were kind of awkward and clumsy. So basically, when it was time to fight, when it was time to run, when it was time for action, they would reach down, grab the bottom of the robe, pick it up, tuck it into their sash or their belt, and that was referred to as girding yourself for action. In that moment, I'm ready to run, I'm ready to fight, I'm ready to move. Kind of had this sense of urgency, it is go time. When it's translated in English, prepare your minds for action. To me, that has a little bit of a flavor of kind of a slow, methodical preparation. I need to go to Sunday school, I need to go to church, I need to have a quiet time. It's kind of like going to college to prepare to be a doctor or engineer or whatever. That is not the sense of the phrase. It's not a long, slow preparation process. It's much more of a sense of urgency. It's much more the sense it is go time. Some translators like the idea of roll up your sleeves. Kind of the imagery that makes the most sense to me if you imagine a sprinter right before the race, he or she has warm-ups on, and in that moment when they're pulled off and it's time to get in the blocks, that's the sense. It is now go time. There's a sense of urgency. It's time for the game face. The moment of truth is here. It's kind of like a pitcher taking off the jacket and running out to the mound. It is now time for action. So that's the first uh, thing. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. The idea is that I get my game face on. I have to remember in the most difficult, confusing, hurtful times in life. 
that ultimately what's true is verses 3 through 12. This is the basis of my hope, and I have to be dialed in and in the zone in certain moments in life to make sure I don't forget that. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Sober, we tend to think of sober versus intoxication, and that's a part of it, but it's far more than that. When you're intoxicated, you're kind of distracted, you're confused, you're fuzzy in your thinking. This is just the opposite of that, that there's absolute clarity, that there's focus, no distractions, that uh, we've kind of zoned out everything else in the moment, game face on, ready for action. Why is that necessary, he says, to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when I have my game face on, what am I fixated on? The text says fixated completely on the grace to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's kind of shorthand. It's a summary of verses 3 through 12. It is remembering in the most painful, in the most difficult, in the most confusing, in the most hurtful moments of life, that I'm not distracted by all kinds of things that ultimately don't matter, but with my game face on, with absolute clarity and discipline of mind, I fixate completely that ultimately my hope is found in the grace that will be revealed to me at the return of Christ. In other words, ultimately my hope is not based on my circumstances. My hope is not based on my money. It's not based on my job. It's not based on my physical health. It's not based on the government. It's not based on my career. It's not based on my relationships. It's not based on my, ma uh, my marriage or my singleness. It's not based on the Republican Party. It's not based on the Democratic Party. It's not based on any of that stuff. This is a consistent message in the New Testament that regardless of my external circumstances, my hope is found in the grace and mercy of Jesus to fulfill the promise he made to fulfill my salvation, which is the hope of the gospel, which will happen at the return of Christ. So in those moments in life when you are hurt, when you are confused, when you are upset, when you are discouraged, when you are in pain, when it feels like life is just so messed up, those are the moments when it's so easy to get distracted and off course and get your mind focused on a hundred things that will discourage you. That, that you have to put your game face on and you have to fixate completely that the basis of my hope is found in Jesus and because it's on the basis of his grace and mercy, it can't be diminished or taken away. And I remember that on my worst days, as well as on my best, best days, my hope is secure in Christ. And no matter what's happening, I have every reason for hope. That's essentially what he has said in that verse. Verse 14, as obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So now, as obedient children, now we, we have been radically born again through the grace and mercy of God. I am now God's child, and my desire is to walk in obedience. He says we should not return to our former lusts. The word lust there doesn't necessarily have to refer to evil things. They're just simply the desires of my heart that I was seeking to satisfy through the things of this world. Before my relationship with God, I had legitimate, deep longings, deep within my soul, but I did not know how to satisfy them. I tried all kinds of things in this world to find something that would ultimately satisfy, but nothing satisfied. I lived that way because I was ignorant of what was happening. I was ignorant of what my soul was ultimately longing for. But now that I experienced new life in Christ, now I understand why those things of the world were not satisfying, why that wasn't working. Why now that I know the truth, would I ever go back to those things I was doing in my ignorance? So in essence, that's what he's saying. Therefore, now... As obedient children, do not be conformed, kind of squeezed into the mold of this world. Don't go back to those behaviors, to the former lusts which were, were yours in your ignorance. So don't do that. So what should you do? Well, we should seek to be holy as God is holy. He ends that paragraph with a quote from Leviticus. Be holy as I am holy. So what exactly does that mean? If I was to say to you this morning, don't be conformed to your former ways of life, but instead be holy as God is holy. Have a nice day. See you next week. You're still left with the question, I don't know what that means. What does it mean to be holy? It's kind of that vague religious language that sounds good, but you kind of walk away saying, I, I don't know what that means. Kind of conjures up images of like a halo. Maybe you glow a little bit. Maybe it's full of lots of religious behavior, religious language. Maybe I say everything's a blessing. You know, whatever sounds kind of holy religious-like. When my girls were younger and uh, living at home, they would invite their friends over, and sometimes their friends were a little intimidated. I mean, it's, it's the pastor's house. So I used to say to them, just tell them, your dad's like anyone else except he glows in the dark. It's kind of the imagery of, is that, is that holy? Is that? Sometimes we also kind of get this idea that now that I have a ticket to heaven, I'm obligated 
to obey the rules. So that's holy. Here are the rules. You have to do them. There's kind of this negative tone to it. But that isn't what it's talking about at all. The word holy, uh, the root word, means to be different. It means to be other. I think my favorite definition of holiness is other than. God is holy because he's utterly other than anyone else in the universe. Basically, the idea is this. Before God created, God existed eternally in eternity past. Even though God is one, yet he is three persons. We were introduced in the introduction of this letter to God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, with the reminder that all three members of the Trinity are busy at work to bring about the fulfillment of the promise of salvation. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is kind of this strange, wondrous, mysterious doctrine that, frankly, none of us can get our minds around. But the relevance is that from eternity past, God has been a relational God. God existed in a relationship with himself. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father. The Father celebrating and glorifying and enjoying the Son, the Son, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Father. So there has been this this life that has defined God forever. That is the very essence of life. Theologians refer to this as the dance of God. When you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we were created as people made in the image of God. In essence, to be relational as God is relational, in a way that separates us from all other creation. In order that we might enter into the depth of the life and the love and the relationship that has defined God forever. That was God's intent. That is essentially what we were made for. But once Adam and Eve sinned, sin separated all of us from God. So we feel that deeply. In this world, there's this sense that I was made for something different than this. I was made for something more than this. There's kind of this restless feeling in our soul that somehow I think there's supposed to be more. I was made for more. And what that is, is my soul's longing for the world as God intended it to be. Longing to enter into that life as God defines it. Essentially, the offer of salvation is the offer the invitation to join the dance. We experience it to some degree now, but in its complete fulfillment at the revelation or the return of Jesus Christ. That's essentially what salvation is. So when Jesus is talking about eternal life, it's not just a duration of life, but it's a quality of life. This is life as God intended it to be. This is the fullness of life that is found in God. And on the basis of our salvation, we're, entered, we're invited into the dance. So the idea of being holy is the idea of being utterly other than this world. 
to understand that life is found in God. It's found in the salvation that he offers. This is the life that is to find God forever. He's so utterly other than everything else in this world. And now as his child, why would I return back to the futile, empty ways of life that just left me disappointed and wounded and confused again and again and again when he's actually called me to enter into this life that is utterly other than anything this world can offer. God says, be holy as I am holy. Why? Because that's where the fullness of life is found. That's where we find life. That's where we find joy. That's where we find peace. That's where we find hope. That's the essence of what he's saying there. Verse 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Basically what that paragraph is saying is that the one that you now as a child of God call Father, There's a sense of relationship and intimacy there that now has been made possible. Never forget that the one that you call father is still the sovereign judge of the universe. This is still the one who will judge every man according to his or her works. This is the God that ultimately brings condemnation on sin. The idea of fear is not so much afraid, but a deep respect. Basically, the idea is that now that we call God Father, now that we are no longer under the condemnation of our sin, but rather we have been forgiven on the basis of the blood of Jesus, why would we return to our old sinful futile ways. The idea is now that you call the ultimate judge father, don't somehow convince yourself that sin is somehow not that big a deal. Don't kind of uh, diminish the reality or the, the offense of sin. Don't somehow trivialize your sin. That now on the basis of the grace of God, God's got it covered, doesn't really bother him all that much, no big deal, no harm, no foul. It's actually saying, no, actually the opposite. Now that you call the ultimate judge your father, you should be so aware that sin is so offensive to God that it actually separated us from God. It actually is so offensive to God that God brings condemnation 
on that sin. And for those that don't experience God's salvation, they will be ultimately judged and condemned forever because sin is offensive to God. So now that you have been saved, now you call the judge your father, don't somehow trivialize sin and excuse it and think it's no big deal because God's grace covers it all. So he reminds us of the cost, what it costs God to forgive your sin. He says, your sin is so offensive to God that you actually had to be purchased, redeemed. It's a slave market term. You were purchased out of the slave market of sin in order to be set free before God. The purchase price was so great it could not possibly be paid by something as worthless as gold and silver. The only thing that had enough value to purchase you out of the slave market of sin is the precious blood of the lamb, the sinless son of God. That it actually cost God his son to pay the purchase price, to cover your sin because it's that offensive to God. There is a reminder that this son that shed his blood was actually the eternal creator of the universe, that he existed before there was anything else. Somehow, someway, the eternal God, the Genesis 1-1 creator God, took on human flesh. Peter essentially says he actually lived in our lifetime. He walked this earth while Peter and the first readers were alive on earth. In order to shed his blood, to provide salvation for future generations, awaiting the return of Christ. We learned last week that we live in the generation, in the time period since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that the prophets looked forward to and wondered who would be the lucky generation that would live in the fulfillment of the salvation God promises. Something so spectacular that the angels long to look on, to watch what God is doing. We happen to be the generation, all those since the resurrection of Christ, who actually live in the fulfillment of everything God promised. And all we await now is the return of Christ and the fulfillment of everything God has promised. He says the ultimate result then would be to the glory of God and that we as his children would find our faith and our hope in God. If verses 3 through 12 are true, therefore, we should not go back to the empty way of life that defined us before. We should not be seeking to satisfy our deepest longings and needs in the things of this world. We did that when we were ignorant, but we're not ignorant anyway anymore. We should not go back to that empty way of life, but realize that life is found in God. It's found in this other than 
way that is so different from everything this world offers and that can only be found in a relationship with God. We remind ourselves that our salvation was so costly to God that we should never trivialize sin, but rather we should seek to walk in obedience. We should walk in holiness because that's where life is found. Ultimately, then, we find our hope. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your pain, regardless of your confusion, regardless of your heartache, regardless of anything you're going through, no matter what this world throws at you, our hope is found in God. Our minds are fixated on the grace to be revealed when Jesus returns. If you have trusted Christ as Savior, no matter what happens on this earth, your future is absolutely spectacular. And that is the basis for your hope. But here's the deal. This is not how we just think naturally. Just because you heard this this morning doesn't mean somehow by osmosis it sinks in and that's how you will think tomorrow. There is no one in the room that is so spiritual that this is your default mode. I absolutely guarantee you this is not your default mode. The only way to experience the joy, the peace, and the hope that can be yours in the most difficult moments of life is it is absolutely necessary to get your game face on and to understand in those difficult moments of life, I have to fixate my mind clearly disciplined in my thinking to remember that ultimately my hope is found in the grace that will be revealed in the return of Christ. It is only when we, with all of our self-discipline and mental skills, get our game face on, get in the zone, and in those moments, focus that we remember no matter what, no matter what, I have every reason for hope. It's the only way you're going to live as a hope-filled person, living in the midst of a culture of despair. Our Father, we do celebrate that when we were lost in our sin with no hope, you gave up your own son to shed his blood that we might have life. Lord, it is virtually impossible for us to understand the depth of what we have in Christ. But Lord, help us. Give us what we need in those most difficult, confusing moments of life to fix our minds completely on the truth that our hope is ultimately found in Christ.
ultimately to be fulfilled in his soon return. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On December 20th of last year, my wife and I served each other divorce papers. I've been in the Army National Guard for 18 and a half years. Um, I've served overseas three times. Um, I went to Bosnia, which is also known to have more than a million mines still unaccounted for. And I was a gunner at the time, and so I was the most exposed person in this vehicle. And so the truck is just constantly hitting all these ruts in the road. And I mean, you are just, your nerves are so shot at this point. You are just waiting that one of those times the truck actually comes off a rut that it's over, game over. I come home after my third deployment. I had started a job that I had no idea how demanding it would be. It could be a six hour day, it could be an 18 hour day. I can't be a coach, I can't, I can't promise that I'm gonna be home at a certain time. There's nothing I can commit my life to except for this job. I became very demanding um, after all the, the money and the hours that I worked and earned and all that, um, I just became very entitled. You knew the words that were coming out of your mouth were bad. You knew they were wrong to talk to somebody like this, but at the same time, you didn't care. I felt a lot of anger, um, but it was at myself, and the more that I felt angry towards myself for acting like this, the more that I lashed out at her. So little by little, it pretty much chipped away at her self-esteem and who she was as an individual. You can just see how everything is just building on top of each other. Five days before Christmas, we, we, we served each other divorce papers is what it came down to. I was sick to my stomach every day. Um, like, you feel like your heart is stopping. Like, the only way to actually, like, physically stop the pain is your hand over your chest trying to calm yourself down or hold your chest together. I had decided to go for a walk around Holmes Lake, and I'm just trying to clear my head. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a breath. So as I was going on this walk, um, a lot of, a lot of the words that were coming to me was failure. Failure as a husband. Failure as a father. And uh, I couldn't help but just keep having this overwhelming feeling that I needed to surrender myself to something higher than me, higher than her. And so, uh, the only other person you think of is God. And like a split second, I can't, I can't make this stuff up. In a split second, it was all gone. All that pain that I was feeling and everything that I thought I couldn't understand or I couldn't control or I couldn't think straight was gone. Like in a split second, all that weight that was on me was just gone. I had come home from this walk with just all this clarity um, and I just got behind my computer and I just started typing everything that was on my mind. Five years of things that you can go back to and just see 
this was wrong, this was wrong, I, I made a bad mistake here, so that maybe my wife would see that I see what I did wrong. I know what I did wrong, I see it now. I'm truly sorry I am. I completely understand if you leave me, but I want you to know that I know that I did the wrong thing. Sean Nichols. After years of making very bad decisions and hurting the people closest to me, I had a moment of clarity. I firmly believe that this was God speaking to me and telling me I needed to surrender myself to His grace and live a life through Jesus Christ. Had I continued making the bad decisions, so many people would have been impacted and so much pain and misery would have ensued. I'm being baptized because I'm ready to surrender myself to God. What I surrendered is nothing. It's absolutely nothing compared to what Jesus did for us. Today it means I don't have to be angry anymore. I'm not that person anymore. I can easily say that. It feels so good to even say that. The hardest thing that you'll ever do in your life is give up control. But when you do, you'll find peace. <laughs>